All right, good evening, everybody. Welcome to our final class on Watership Down, which is sort of sad in itself. Um, I've been really looking forward to this class. Uh, I'm uh, really good. I'm, I, after having spent this week reviewing the film and uh, preparing uh, for this class, I'm really glad that uh, we decided to go ahead and add this this class session on the film. Um, the Watership Down film has been kind of lurking. Um, I don't know. Lurking is a sort of an unresolved question uh, in my mind for a long time. It's been a long time since I've seen it. I had very violently negative reactions to it the first time. Um, but I couldn't... If pressed, I had a hard time really pointing to what I thought the problems with the film were. What exactly was it that I didn't like about it? Um... Uh, and uh, I've I've I figured it out, uh, and I've had a lot of fun preparing. At, well, not quite an exhaustive, but uh, a relatively exhausting look at uh, uh, the the my sort of criticisms of this film. Um, but uh, we will. So I, I I hope you will enjoy uh, looking at some of this with me and talking a bunch of this stuff over. But first, uh, uh, two quick announcements before I get too far ahead of myself. First, just a last reminder, uh, this week <clears throat> is the last chance to sign up for spring classes, so if you still haven't, um, if you haven't had the chance yet to sign up for our Science Fiction 2 or uh, Beowulf class, I encourage you to look into that. Uh, the, both classes are really great and off to a great start, so uh, it's your last chance to be able to sign up to those if you want a chance to. And uh, the second thing, the second announcement, is... Uh, the uh, Mythgard Academy finalists. Now, technically, the voting uh, among our Council of the Wise uh, to winnow down the nominations for our next book uh, close at midnight tonight. Um, but I think it's basically, uh, it's like uh, in presidential elections, you know, when like the network calls, uh, just calls it, you know, basically. Uh, when it's it's pretty clear the direction that the math is uh, is 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 trending, and the electorate has essentially spoken, even though the polls are still open, um, or all the votes haven't yet been counted. Anyway, that's pretty much where we are. Uh, now we decided we're going to do as we did at one point uh, in the middle of last year. We're going to elect the next two books. That way, we can sort of prepare ourselves better for what's going to uh, for what's going to come. So. Um, I'm going to, the, 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 the slate of finalists, which of course will be announced by email, and all of you who are uh, voting will, uh, uh, all of our voters will have the opportunity, all of our uh, uh, supporters, all of our uh, campaign supporters will have the opportunity to vote, uh, to cast their votes for, uh, for which books we will actually discuss next and second to next. Uh, and let me get to it here. Okay. The list is... Book of Lost Tales Part 2. Not a shocking nomination, I have to admit, since we did Book of Lost Tales Part 1 before. Book of Lost Tales Part 2. The Princess Bride by William Goldman. Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norrell by Susanna Clarke. American Gods by Neil Gaiman. Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy by Douglas Adams. Elantris by Brandon Sanderson. And Till We Have Faces by C.S. Lewis. Those are our top seven. Those are our seven finalists. Two of those seven books we will be discussing in the next two Mythgard Academy classes to come. Uh, so the electorate will be able to cast your votes for two uh, of those. Um, uh, Thomas, that was listed in order. Yes, that was uh, one through seven as they came in in the final voting. But... 
don't jump to any conclusions from that. The last time we did this, um, I, if I remember correctly, it was something like the book. We, we I think we did five last time. Uh, we took the top five and then elected two out of that five. And uh, the number three, I think, book won in a landslide uh, in the general election. So the, the dynamics change when people are only choosing two uh, out of the list. So, uh, so you know, don't assume that the top two vote-getters in the, in the nomination round, The Book of Lost Tales Part Two and The Princess Bride, are definitely uh, the next ones. But uh, uh, anyway, uh, Karita's pretty excited. She says, she says it's like Christmas. Uh, I agree. This is a fantastic list. There are a couple books uh, on here that are new to me. I don't know Jonathan Strange and, Miss, and, uh, and Mr. Norr, although I've heard wonderful things about it and look forward to reading it, nor do I know Elantris by Brandon Sanderson. In fact, I've never read anything by Brandon Sanderson. Um, I know him only as that dude who took on the thankless job of attempting to bring the Wheel of Time to a close. Um, but uh, anyway... Uh, so it's, but I mean, obviously, there are some wonderful, wonderful books uh, in this list, um, uh, and I'm not going to advocate for any in particular. But uh, but I think this is a, this is a great list. So um, I am. Uh, so I just want to pass that along. Uh, two of those seven will be our next two, and some of these are familiar candidates. Um, we've had uh, uh, we've had the Princess Bride and American Gods uh, in particular. Those two have been finalists before. So um, anyway. Uh, I just wanted to pass along the news there. Um, We should be voting, I think, in this next week. Um, This, of course, being the end of this class, we're planning definitely to take, uh, you know, we'll have a a sort of a break for next week at least. Um, We will announce soon not only what the next book we're doing is, um, but what the official start date uh, for that uh, uh, for that class is going to be. So uh, that should be that should be coming up. uh, That should be coming up pretty soon. All right, uh, let's uh, so let's talk about the movie. So as I said before, when uh, I hated this film when I first saw it, just loathed it. Um, as I've shared already in this class, I've loved the book Watership Down since I was like eight, uh, about the same time that I read The Hobbit. Um, I don't think I saw the film until I was like in high school, maybe, um, and I hated it. But again, I wasn't, I was not a hundred percent sure that I would still hate it. Uh, when I watched it again, because I'm not even sure I've seen it since high school, um, because I had such an aversion to it, I never wanted to see it again. Um, and uh, and you know, looking back, I was you know, so before I was watching it again, I was like, well, you know, when I was in high school, I was an insufferable purist, and maybe I, you know, uh, I I didn't give it a fair shake. I mean, goodness, I can only imagine what I would have been saying about the you know the Peter Jackson films, any of the six Peter Jackson films, had they come out when I was in high school. Um, but uh, but at the same time, I. Uh, I was suspecting that I was still going to dislike it, mostly because of the reactions that I kept getting from people. I talked about this a couple times early on in the class. You know, when I announced over my, you know, my Twitter feed and everything, oh, we're going to do Watership Down, this is awesome, I'm so excited, there were a, a, a significant number of people who responded to me saying, oh, you know, nah, I'm going to pass on Watership Down, saw the movie, hated it, and I, or, you know, or basically saw like, oh, no, I, I, Watership Down is too dark and depressing for me, I'm not going to read that. And I was like, what are you talking about? It's like just about the most uplifting book that I know, which is true. And, um, 
So the fact that that the movie has led people to categorize Watership Down as dark and depressing, um, you know, knowing that it has had that effect on, on so many people, uh, led me to suspect that my initial reactions were probably not wholly wrong about it. Um, and uh, uh, <laughs> see that Eric is saying uh, she realized halfway through the movie, uh, seeing it for the first time, that she'd been biased into thinking it bad right from the beginning from everything I've said about it. See, I feel guilty now, Eric. I apologize for that. Um, but um, uh, yeah, so uh, what I... Um, uh, so anyway, after seeing it again, uh, now I still pretty much hate it, but... But here's the thing, right? It stays really close to the book. I mean, on the one hand, it's almost like you could say, how could you ask for more than this? I mean, on the, you know, if you were to have some kind of scale, right? You know, some kind of rating scale, not for how good the movie is as a movie, but for how close it stays to the narrative of the book. This is really high on the rating, right? I mean, it stays quite close. It makes some changes, but it, I mean, it has to compress a lot, obviously. I mean, the book is about ten times as long, um, almost exactly ten times as long, actually, a little bit more than ten times as long. Like, that is to say, the unabridged audio reading of the book is about ten, is, is more than ten times as long as, uh, as, the, as the film is. So, obviously, there's a lot that had to go, right? There's a lot that, and, and, and really, less than I would expect. Um, they they even they didn't even cut nearly as much as I would have sort of guessed that they would uh, that they would cut. Um, so uh, um, now I agree. A couple of you have expressed, and I, and I totally agree with you uh, that the way that they did that that their choice to remain faithful in that way didn't really necessarily end up in a good product. Arthur uh, here says that. Um, you know, they started so many scenes I wanted to see, then cut them off before fleshing them out, and that was really frustrating. Um, and uh, Nancy says, the movie was like a highlight reel of the book. It hit all the significant events, but didn't show us why they were significant, and we lost the context of everything. I agree. I mean, I think that that's really a big part of the problem here. Um, but, um, anyway. So, so what... What exactly is wrong? I mean, there are, there are problems with the storytelling there, and there's a lot that I think we could say even just on that level. But there are a few things that I want to really kind of dig into. Um, things that, I, that especially just coming right from a, a, a detailed study of the book, that really struck me watching the movie this time around. Um, and uh, I'm, uh, I'm going to first start with things that I like, because I want to keep it positive at the beginning. I don't just want to start off on a rant, because I'm not a hater, you know. I want to I want to start with the things that I... Because there were some things that really struck me that I really liked uh, and was impressed by. Uh, so here's, uh, here's, here's the first one. All my movie clips are kind of small, and I don't want to make them too big, because then they'll be fuzzy. This, of course, is Hazel in Woundboard, near the end. You were one of those on the river bank. Did Bigwig send you? I'm a friend of Bigwig's. What was left unfinished on the river bank will be finished now. It would be better for both of us if we could come to terms. Terms? Oh, very well. These are my terms. Hand over all the deserters immediately. I love the Ever But I can suggest something better for both of us. 
You're in no position to bargain. We shouldn't be fighting each other. We have enough enemies as it is. Perhaps we should be together, adjoining the free, independent warrens. Ah, no time for this nonsense. Shall I kill him, sir? No. <laughs> First of all, Campion. Okay. Uh, I mean, this is a minor point, but um, the, the fact that Campion is turned into, like, the evil stooge henchman of Campion, of uh, Woundwort in the film is actually... F- uh, it's, a, it's a very, very small point, but it's, to me, a fairly telling point all by itself, right? Um, how profoundly they miss the point about Campion and the significance of Campion and his role in the story, how admirable he is. Um, that's a big deal. And they completely whiff on it. They just make him like a, yes, thank you, General Woodward, sir, kind of character. And uh, yeah, that's um, really, really not cool. <laughs> Philip Lord points out that Ephrafa seems to have had uh, an eyeshadow fetish. Uh, I, I, I agree. Uh, that obviously is one of the strict regiments of General Woundwort is extremely heavy. Uh, eye black. Um, that's, a, that's a trend. Um, and um, But anyway, you're at, 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 at Carita, you noticed exactly what I noticed. They... What I like here is what they tried to do. First of all, they didn't have to do this scene. Um, especially given how rushed they were, this, this would have been incredibly easy to cut, right? But they didn't cut this. Um, they kept, you know, this scene, this, uh, you know, Hazel offering Woundwort this visionary option and Woundwort turning away, that's a really important moment. Um, and they, they, they recognized that and they kept it in when, you know, it would have made in many ways more sense for their film. Um, you know, as we're sort of moving towards the climax here, to cut this comparatively unexciting moment and uh, and go straight to the defense and the dog and the the uh, you know the fight with Bigwig. So, but they didn't. So they took the time to do this scene, and they even kind of did it right. I like the um, you know I, I, I you know as I say I like uh, Woundwort's moment of uh, pausing here. You know when he's like. Hmm. Maybe we should do. This. And then he's like, "No." And then he says, "I have no time for this nonsense." I like the the pan around of the Efrafin Ausla before. Um, you know, so we got yeah here. We we got like the the how they they all look exactly the same, right? So there's this rank of Efrafin officers. Um, uh, you know, with like the monstrous woundwort in the middle. It's a really interesting. I mean, it's kind of a caricature of of Ephrafa, but I think it's sort of an effective one. Um, Anyway, I I, I, I I like it. I like it. Um, this so Again, this was a scene I didn't expect them to do. I didn't remember, you know, from seeing it 20 years ago. Or, gosh, more than 20 years ago now, isn't it? Anyway, I didn't recognize it from seeing some large number of years ago that, uh, that they had put this scene in. And I was impressed that they did, and I actually thought that they did a really good job with that. So there we go. Look at that. Um, there's some really careful reading of the story here, the significance of Woundwort almost coming to that decision but turning away from it. Uh, I like that. Okay, so there's non-hating scene number one. Here's non-hating scene number two, though I am much more divided in my feelings about this. There's a lot that I don't like about this scene, but, but there's a lot that I like about it, too. This is Five or Beyond, after Hazel's been shot.
be in some trouble. Hazel's been shot. No. It sounds like he's just in denial. Black Rabbit serves Lord no. Frith. No, he hasn't been shot. But he does no more than his appointed task. Hazel's not dead. His appointed task being to bungee cord from the sky, apparently. If uh, they'd gotten Garfunkel to sing that stupid song in the Rankin-Bass Hobbit instead of Glenn Yarbrough, I probably would only hate it about three-quarters as much as I do. Um, <laughs> Carita hates the music. Sweeping violins have ne'er been so wrong, she says. Um, uh, uh, really? Neil Ottenstein says that song did very well uh, and helped the movie to stay uh, uh, to stay on the charts in some countries. That's interesting. Um, anyway, Garfunkel! What's not to like about Garfunkel? Okay. Um, I kind of like this. There's a lot that I don't like about how it's executed. Um, but I like the concept. I like what they appear to be doing here. I like what the film does at this moment. That is... They, you know, Fiverr through much of the rest of the movie is just kind of twitchy, right? He's like kind of twitchy and and mousy, um, and 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 there's some things that I kind of like about that a little bit. Anyway, um, you know, they show how like small he is and how helpless he is and how nervous he is. He's depicted as nervous and jumpy. Um, uh, they could easily, especially for efficiency of time, they could easily in this moment have um, merely just, you know, had Fiverr be like, no, Hazel's still alive, follow me! And like, you know, they hop down and in a like three-second uh, montage are back at the farm and he's finding him uh, in the bloody hole. Um, uh, that's, that's, uh, that's, you know, um, that would be easy to do. 
Um, and you would still have been able to capture Fiverr's prophetic vision and his saving of Hazel's life um, without having to attempt anything more complicated. And what's more, the degree of difficulty of what the book does there is quite complicated. That's the moment you'll remember when Fiverr's vision becomes the strangest that we've ever seen. It's a shift in the depiction of Fiverr's vision. It's not just words that come to him or images that come to him, the significance of which he doesn't even always perfectly understand, um, or, you know, or, which might excite certain feelings, but he doesn't know what it means. Um, and this was the first this was the first time that we see him deliberately setting out in that 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 picture of you know him going off in his dreams trying to follow that other rabbit that bloody rabbit and uh, uh, you know so we see him sort of questing out into that other world um, and it's again trying to depict that in efficiently on screen is a really really complicated thing to do and although as I said there's a lot that I don't like about how they did it, um, I, I like the fact that they tried to do that. They have they show Fiverr's journey as more than just, like, I have a kind of a hunch that I know where, or I've, like, just for some how magically know exactly what's up with Hazel and where he is. Um, that would make it much simpler and much, in a sense, more mundane, if prophecy can be mundane. Um, it would make it more mundane, right? That sense of, you know, Fiverr beyond... Um, They've, they've managed to accomplish some sense of Fiverr beyond here. And again, I, you know, I'm, not a, I'm not a big fan of... Um, I mean, the song doesn't make a whole lot of sense to me in as much as I comprehend... Or, that is, in as much as I can distinguish the lyrics, which I can do only imperfectly, um, and in as much as I understand the ones that I can distinguish, the song doesn't seem to make a whole lot of sense to me. Um... But nevertheless, I kind of like the idea of putting a song here. I think it's a fascinating choice that they have one musical interlude in the entire movie and that they put it here. I think it's a fascinating choice, and I really like the choice in some ways. Um, no, in a lot of ways, for them to do a song here, um, to try to capture through song and verse this experience of, you know, this sort of the quality of Fiverr's experience here. Again, Nice attempt. Nice attempt. Great idea. I'm a little bit plus minus on the whole Black Rabbit, Elahrera thing. Um, you know, the fact that he's being guided is cool. Um, it simplifies it, of course. It's not, again, it's not like him pursuing that vision of the Bloody Rabbit. And, uh, um, you know, and, and of course there's nothing like the, the, the conversation between him and the man that happens in his dream. But, um... I, uh, um, and yeah, Yana, you're right. Of course, they can't convey that. You know, it can't be done. What happened in the book can't really be done as well in a movie. It can't. Um, so again, it's 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 you know, I, I find the attempt kind of noble. I'll come back to the whole El Herrera Black Rabbit thing. That's something I'm not a big fan of. Um, I um, let's see, and we got let's see, I'm going backwards now. Yeah, uh, this is sort of the the, the uh, trippy moment. Um, I don't get this business with the trees swirling, uh, you know, fr and the rabbits spinning around. Like this, I guess, is like 
you know, Fiverr going beyond, right? Him kind of tumbling around helplessly with his eyes closed. Emphasis on the eyes closed, and he looks like he's, like, dead or asleep or something. So, again, they, they seem to be trying to dis- to describe, like, what's happening to Fiverr in his interior state, while even while in his exterior state, and, again, I don't know what that's about, um, even while in his external state, he's hopping along following this vision of the rabbit. But, again, you know, it's... um um. It's kind of cool. Yana, they do seem to have conflated the characters of El Herrera and the Black Rabbit. They talk about them occasionally, as if they're different. Um, but visually, they certainly ha- they certainly do seem to have conflated them. Um, and that uh, that bothers me. Um, Neil asks, is that Fiverr at that point, or is that Hazel, Hazel suffering? I thought it was Fiverr. Um, again, that it was to show his dream. Maybe it's showing Hazel suffering, maybe. But I don't... I. I I can't, um, uh, I can't really make any sense of the symbolism if it's Hazel. Like, he's showing him closing his eyes and tumbling down. Maybe. Maybe. I thought it was Fiverr, though. Um, uh, because, like, in the book, again, he's following, like, the vision of the bloody rabbit, right? Um, but he's pursuing him to the destination. Um, he's not, um... It's not like he's watching him die or something. It'd be, I, uh, if it is Hazel, it makes less sense to me even, but uh, maybe. Um, uh, I'm open to the idea that it makes less sense than I was originally thinking. Um, but, uh, but anyway. Um, so, so as I say, you know, not great execution. Lots that I kind of don't really like about it. But again... I'm a fan of what they attempted to do and very impressed by the fact that they attempted to do it. Plus, Garfunkel! So, there you go. Um, uh, number three. There was some lovely imagery uh, in this um, in this film. And um, I don't mean that... Uh, you know, Some people didn't like the animation. Uh, I, some people like the animation. Some people don't like the animation. I I sort of adjust to it. I kind of like it more than not, I guess. Not that I like every visual choice they've made, but I I, uh, um, I don't have a huge problem with the animation per se. Um, but there were some moments when they do some kind of inspired things, like this very brief moment that's easy to miss, that in fact I did miss at first. This is right outside of Ephrafa, while Bigwig is uh, plotting to escape. Isn't that cool? That is... Uh, this, this comes right after the scene where Kehar is acting like a complete git in the field. Uh, and, uh, um, and and then we're going to move over to Bigwig and, uh, you know, Campion being all evil henchmen-like. Um, but we're going to pause first for like 11 to 12 seconds to just pan over this old, huge, majestic, but dead and blasted tree which is right next to Ephrafa. And I like it. Um, the way that they offer this as a kind of visual depiction, um, you know, a kind of a visual symbol, 
either for Woundwort personally or for Ephrafa in general, right? You know, you've got this uh, this great, strong, grand, but like fallen into, you know, corrupted and fallen into decay. Um, uh, you know, the way that, that, that this worked symbolically, um, you know, as sort of a frame for Ephrafa and a transition from Bigwig uh, back to Woundwort, I thought it was really cool. I really, I really, I really liked that. Um, so, uh, so again, you know, there, 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 there's some moments like that where, you know, sort of the artistry and the visual concept of what they do, um, is, uh, is, is really good. Yeah, Nick, uh, Marazzo was pointing out how it's also introduced by evil music. Yes, the soundtrack really sort of kicks in there. Um, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, Kate Neville says, uh, what she didn't like about the animation was that despite some pretty pictures, the animation was too static, which seems inappropriate for a story about creatures known for their speed. The occasional static shot would then be more effective as a counterpoint. Um, I, I agree that, um, the, um, certainly the, the rabbits were never impressively fast, you know, when things are supposed to be moving like a flash, they don't really move like a flash. But now, again, in part, I feel like this is not just an animation question, but also a translation to visual medium question, right? That is to say, it's easy in in a book to describe something moving, like, so fast you can barely see it. But if you actually visually depict, if you faithfully depict something moving faster than you can see it, then, well, you won't be able to see it, and it won't look like much on the screen. So, uh, you know, in an animation, you know, do we want them vanishing in a little puff of dust like the Roadrunner, you know, in Looney Tunes? Or I, But again, I totally agree with you um, that the effect was they all looked kind of sluggish and dopey uh, at times. Um, but um, But it's... It's a kind of thing that's really, really hard uh, to think about how to how to capture. Or rather, when you do actually visualize it, some you know it it ends up looking strange. Um, you know, I mean, and I'm thinking, you know, this is this is often true. I mean, I was reminded of you know at uh, Mythmoot when we were talking with Chris Pearson uh, from the Lord of the Rings Online, and he was describing some things that you know they they couldn't be faithful to because when they did represent them faithfully as they were as Tolkien describes them in the book it ends up looking really anticlimactic i mean as 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 he described for instance the stone of erech uh in the return of the king they first made it in the game they put it to scale in the game exactly as it's described in the book um and it, when you, it's about the size of a coffee table, he said. And it's what it looks like. You know, you're kind of walking, you've got all this woods and huge hills, and there's this, like, little tiny rock uh, up on top. I mean, like, from a distance, it looks like nothing. Um, and the point that he was making is that, actually, you know, some, some things like that, when you translate them with perfect faithfulness to a visual medium, it fails to do justice to the effect that the thing has in the book. If you see the Stone of Erech and your reaction is like, oh, that's it, then you have failed to represent the Stone of Erech, however, howsoever faithfully you may have translated it from book to screen, right? Um, and I think that there are often situations like that. Um, 
Uh, I mean, I think of another comment uh, made by Kate Madison, the woman who uh, who directed the Born of Hope uh, fan movie. Um, I heard her, heard her give a talk uh, in, in, in England a couple years ago at the Tolkien uh, Society conference, and she made a really great point. Her point, uh, she was talking in particular about the death of Arathorn, uh, Aragorn's dad, who, you may remember, takes an arrow in the eye. And she said she had a really hard time filming that, um, not because it was too gruesome, but because it's too comical that any time like, you see a picture of a guy with an arrow sticking out of his face, um, it, there's always the risk that it's just going to look funny. Um, you're like, oh, I've got an arrow sticking out of my head. Um, and that, like, basically every time they did it, it just ended up looking... I mean, again, there was... Not that it was like always drop-dead funny, but there was always at least like the, a potential edge of comedy where people could start to laugh at the end. That's not the, like the death of the hero is not the moment when you want uh, every any, any chance of people to be laughing. So she she stayed true to it. And he does get stabbed in the eye with an arrow, but it's not just a like you know I've, he ne- at no point is standing there with an arrow sticking out of his head. Um, anyhow, this that 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 kind of thing I think often happens. That kind of challenge often happens, and I do think so. You know, so many of those for that reason, Kate. I try to be forgiving for things like that because it it's, gets really easy. Um, I don't want to criticize this movie just for being a movie, you know, and not for being the book. Um, so I've been I've tried to be good about not just kind of ripping into it for too many things like to anything really that I think I can just attribute to its being not in the same medium uh, as the book. But there are some things for which I find it harder to excuse it. Um, Philip, great example, Smaug size. Absolutely. Um, Smaug, the Smaug in the film was way bigger than Smaug is described in the book. Way bigger. But had they depicted Smaug the same size, he would have looked... I mean, had they showed a Smaug like a little bit larger than a horse, um... how, what 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 an anticlimax would that have been, right? All the audience would have been like, "Oh, look at the little dragon," right? Um, and M- Michael Balrog too, exactly, exactly. Same thing with the Balrog. This kind of uh, this kind of thing comes up all the time. So again, I try to be forgiving. Try to be forgiving about things like that, um, and not be too bothered. Um, but uh, but okay. And uh, all right, last one. Um, uh, last uh, thing that I like before I before I get to the all of the things I didn't like. Here's my fourth quip of things that I like before I get to the 15 other quips I have of things I don't like. Um, this is the end. This is the uh, Hazel's death scene. Yeah. Frith was his friend. And every evening when Frith has done his day's work and lies calm and easy in the red sky. Elorara and his children and his children's children come out of their holes and feed and play in his sight. For they are his friends. And he has promised that they can never be destroyed. Hazel. I like Ella Herrera's voice. Yes, my lord. I know you. 
I know you'll like doing this for the rest of the I think they do a lot of stuff really well here. Um, again, there's some things to dislike, but I like uh, I like the overheard story. I like the way that we get back to a legend of Elahuera at the end and the juxtaposition between the the overhearing of this of the of the of the story of Elahuera with the death of Hazel. Um, the whole you know the the whole dynamic of Hazel's concern for his Warren and how you know it doesn't say about his strength flowing into them, but you know how he is reassured about that. I like how they do Elahrera's voice. You know, it's not too, like, Hazel. Like, it's not too, like, stupidly ghostly and creepy and reverby. Um, it's nice. Carito likes these sweeping violins a little bit better than the others. I'm glad to hear it. Um, uh, uh, Sharon Powell and uh, Nancy were both saying that they like how Hazel looks old. Um uh, yeah, yeah, I I like that too. Uh, Sharon says uh, I didn't picture him that way in the book, and it makes it clear that Hazel lived a good long life. Uh, and I agree with Nancy that his his like white eyebrows are kind of adorable. Um, and I love that fact that um, oh, good. Yeah, Yana was saying the same thing. That they like how they aged Hazel, um, and um, they uh, I like uh, my favorite bit is, you know, when they show the spirit here of young Hazel uh, coming up, and he's recognizably the younger Hazel from earlier in the film. Um, you know, I just, I, I, I think that that's done really well. Yes, Elohera is a little bit creepy, the whole, like, you know, the whole, like, rabbit spirit going to and fro in the wind thing uh, kind of cloys on me a little bit, but it's fine. I, I don't mind it um, that much. I can get over that. Um, and um, uh, the whole juxtaposition or confusion, really, of Elahrera and the Black Rabbit um, is a little bit... Uh, I still dislike it. Um, uh, yeah, I, Michael and Thomas are both, both sort of talking about that. Because, um, I mean, we get clearly that moment going backwards here. All right, Hazel breathing... Right, okay, we've got the bouncing rabbit head, and we're looking over at the little ones, and we're sweeping around randomly in circles, and how much he's going to enjoy doing that forever. Um, yeah, all those eyebrows are just really adorable. It's totally true. Okay. Uh, yeah, do you, yeah, here it is. Like, do you know me? No, I don't know you. Do you know me now? Oh, yeah. Ah, and that's when he recognizes him. He's like, oh, the death rabbit. Of course I know you, my lord, right? Um, uh, I don't like how the black rabbit is conflated with El Herrera either. At the same time, um, I... They don't have much time, right? So the fact that they, they do make an, a gesture anyway... 
at identifying the black rabbit and trying to explain what the heck the black rabbit is and what's uh, you know what's what's important about the black rabbit. Um, but it's it's um, I don't know. I mean, it's all it, it is kind of confused and confusing. But again, to me, minor point. I like the rest of the scene. I think they did you know Hazel's death scene and and sort of the wrap up of the story pretty well there. I like the leaving of the body behind and the way they do that. Um, it's uh, it's uh, it's kind of nice. They have the the it's that's good. So so um, that was good. But there are some things also that I didn't like. There are three primary things that I want to look at. Um, three things that, to me, are the crucial elements which lead to the um, to the, the failure of this film. Um, one th- first thing I want to address is sort of the overall perspective. That question: Why is it so dark? What is it that makes this story, this film? dark and depressing, where the book is not dark and depressing. Is it because it's more violent than the book? More bloody? That's the primary thing. If there's one thing that people who see this film for the first time are, remark on, it's how violent and bloody it is. Um, uh, you know, like why, why, uh, why is this bucolic rabbit film suddenly, you know, uh, look like a look like a warm a war film um, it isn't more violent or bloody it's not um, in fact it's less violent and less bloody than the book um, the book has more violence and more blood I mean like for instance uh, remember Bigwig is wounded and limping and bleeding all down his side the whole time they're fleeing from Ephrafa, right? He escapes from his fight, not with Bartzia, but with Churville, who's an even more he has like that wicked henchman voice, right? Um, but uh, but anyway uh, he, 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 he fights so he, it's, it's not Bartzia, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's Churville, but anyway, he escapes that unscathed right? And waltzes off uh, down to the bridge. So uh, there is, in that way, less violence, less blood. Why the different effect? Why is it so shocking? And I and and I don't think it's just me. It's not shocking in the book. Um, I know very few people who've read the book and are like, "Whoa, the violence! I just I don't know. I can't handle it." Um, that's it. Doesn't have that effect. Why? Well, there are two answers that I would give to this. One is simply that it's a visual medium and this hits you differently when you're seeing it than when you're reading it. There's no way around that. Um, Reading a description of a field strewn with bloody and mutilated corpses is just fundamentally different from being shown a visual picture of a field strewn with bloody and dismembered corpses. I mean, it's... There is no getting around the fact that the visual has a different impact. Seeing a rabbit with blood all running down his face and dripping out of his mouth hits us differently than reading about a rabbit who is a mass of blood um, and whose fangs and claws are covered with the blood of his enemy. That happens in the book. We see it in the film, and when we see it in the film, it's a lot more shocking. Um, so, um, 
so anyway, that's that's uh, one simple thing, and, I, and again, I don't think that's avoidable. It's, it seems to me an almost inescapable fact of translating it to a visual medium. But there's a second, and to me, even more significant and more broadly suggestive reason why I think this film strikes people um, as more dark and depressing, even though in many ways they haven't changed the overall... Um, you know, they ha- it's not like they've... they've uh, beefed up the darkness exactly. They've not added things to make it darker, really. A few things, we'll come back to some of those, but um, but again, I don't think that that's really the core problem. The core problem, I think, is the framing of this story, or rather, the lack of framing of this story. Um, let's, uh, let's, let's look at a few things. Um, this is the longest clip I have to show you. It's the opening sequence. This is the Blessing of El Herrera sequence that we get at the beginning of the story. And what I want you to notice, what I want to talk about after we look at this, is where does this put us? What is our relationship as viewers with the story, with El Herrera, and with the rabbits when we watch this? What context... Are we, what contextual cues are we given to understand what's happening here? Long ago, the great Frith made the world. Now the animation difference is very he important, made all right? The stars. And the world lived among the stars. Frith made all the animals and birds, and at first made them all the same. Now, among the animals was Elahrera, the prince of rabbits. He had many friends, and they all ate grass. But after a time, the rabbits wandered everywhere, multiplying and eating as they went. Then Frith said to Elahrera, Prince Rabbit, if you cannot control your people, I shall find ways to control them. But Elahrera would not listen and said to Frith, My people are the strongest in the world. Angered Frith, so he determined to get the better of Elahrera. He gave a present to every animal and bird, making each one different from the rest. When the fox came, and others like the dog and the cat, warp and weasel, to each of them, Frith gave a fierce desire to hunt and slay the children of Elahrera. Elahrera knew that Frith was too clever for him, and he was frightened. He had never before seen the black rabbit death. My friend, said Frith, have you seen Elahrera? For I wish to give him a gift. No, I have not seen him, 
So Frith said, Come out, and I will bless you instead. No, I cannot. I am busy. The fox and weasel are coming. If you want to bless me, you'll have to bless my bottom. Very well. Be it so. And Elachrera's tail grew shining white and flashed like a star. And his back legs grew long and powerful. And he tore across the hill faster than any creature in the world. Okay. I'm like, that's not faster than any creature in the world. All the world will be your enemy. Prince with a thousand enemies. And whenever they catch you, they will kill you. But first they must catch you. Digger, listener, runner. Prince with the swift warning. Be cunning. Full of tricks, and your people will never be destroyed. So the animation shift showing the shift from legendary time to modern time. It's effective, it effectively communicates, right? But it's So the, the camera sort of anticipates the journey, uh, you know, in reverse. I kind of like that. Okay. All right. So, several of you had a bunch of comments. The sun looks creepy. I agree. A bunch of you were commenting on not only the change in the animation, but the fact that the animations, uh, the the animation, the style of the drawings in the first segment, in the dream segment, um, kind of looks... Uh, uh, you know, Arthur uh, Harrow and Sarah Lagarde are both saying it looks reminiscent of Aboriginal art. I agree. You, you know, they, they look vaguely like something that you would see in a cave, right? Like a like a, an, an ancient cave painting. Um, this clearly does seem to suggest the ancientry of this story, right? Both the ancientness and legendariness of it. Okay, what's the effect? What's the effect on us? Right? We are looking at something from the past. We are being invited to compare it with a faraway and primitive culture. Right? That's that's what it's... Where are our sympathies? What, where are we in this? It's... I would suggest that... One of the effects of this, of course, is to distance it from us very appropriately, as it's supposed to be in, uh, uh, in you know, it's, it's supposed to be distant from us in time. But there's... I can't help but laugh. I mean, the weasel makes me laugh every, you know, makes me laugh every time. Um... Am I supposed to take this seriously? Uh, and like, in what sense am I taking this seriously? 
we're supposed to relate to Elacrera, are we? I guess. Um, when Elacrera is in not this stage, uh, being traumatized by death, but in this stage, oh, by I love that's my favorite scene right here. The animal's like, "Why us? Overrun by rabbits? We're poor." And uh, then Elacrera is all obnoxious, right? Hey, I don't care. I'm going to do what we want. It doesn't matter to me, right? Um, again, where are our sympathies? Remember the book, right? Remember the context of this story. And what in particular I would encourage you to remember is the interruption that we get at the vi- right near the very end of this story. Adams is very careful to marshal our sympathies in a particular way because of the through the context in which he places this story. Remember you remember this passage. All the rabbits had heard the story before on winter nights when the cold draft moved down the warren passages and the icy wet lay in the pits of the runs below their burrows and on summer evenings in the grass under the red may and the sweet carrion scented elder bloom. Dandelion was telling it well, and even Pipkin forgot his weariness and danger, and remembered instead the great indestructibility of the rabbits. Each one of them saw himself as Elacrera, who could be impudent to frith and get away with it. Notice how that contextualizes Elacrera's kind of <laughs> jerky statement to, uh, to, uh, to, to frith, right? If we didn't have that context... Um, he would look. Uh, I, I, Brian and Michael say that he looks silly and extremely ignorant, and I agree with both of those assessments. He does look silly uh, and arrogant. Um, it would be possible to read the book story that way too, but we're prevented from doing so because we are listening to the story, but we are listening sort of shoulder to shoulder with the rest of the rabbits. Right? The story is about. Uh, the blessing of rabbits as a whole, and we are we see it emphasized how they themselves identify with Elacrera, how they feel themselves to be a part of that great unbroken chain of rabbitry that has inherited Frith's promise, right? The way in which they themselves are in solidarity to the story, and the particular way in which they interpret it and are in solidarity of the story, um, helps us to respond to it in a particular way. We can, we can hold back if we choose to. We can resist that if we want to. But we have to choose that. Um, that's where the story puts us. We're listening along with Dandelion's other audience members, right? We get no context at all of this story. It's the first thing we see. And we have no reason not to hold ourselves aloof from it and to be judgmental. And I think this story, this having no frame to this leaves it at the very least open to the possibility if not the likelihood of condescension that is of us responding this and being like oh that Elacrera whatever you know like he you know we're not going to come out of this with identification I don't think I don't see that how we're prompted to do that um, and that seems to me to introduce a fatal kind of problem um, if we maintain this kind of anthropological distance, um, uh, you know, we're studying this, we're being invited to receive this as a kind of artifact, right? An ancient artifact. Um, 
but yet to respond to it, I think, we, st- the, oh, we, we left open to, to respond to it condescendingly. Um, and that, I, again, I, th- I think that that's, that that's really a potentially destructive thing. Now, now watch what happens next. So right after that, you know, I uh, was showing, you know, we, I did the panning back to the opening, the opening credits. The opening credits are still ending, as you can see. Listen carefully. What do you hear? Many a game play from it, too. Ah, well, you can't hold back progress. Shame, though. Good Lord, it's gone eight. And I told Elizabeth we'd go into Newbury this evening. Old sunsets are late in summer. It's morning before evening. Okay. The men putting up the sign, right? Um, those... We're overhearing the workman who just erected the sign that's going to give Fiverr his bad dreams, right? His 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 terrible vision, um, and we can hear a little bit of the backstory in it, right? First of all, I do like the I give them credit for getting the accents right. They do wonderful accents, um, which sound exactly like uh, Adams represented them uh, in the story. But um, I think it's telling. It's a very small and subtle thing. We don't see them, right? The first thing after the woodland scenery, the first thing that we get is Hazel's eye here, right? The vision of Hazel. But but that's not the first thing we get. The first... Again, how is this story framed? Where are we placed in relationship to these characters and to the action of this story? And the answer is from a human point of view, not being told any different, not giving any other context. We're gonna, we're, there's no reason for us not to relate to that quaint old legend of Elohera from a human standpoint, from outside, not from inside it, as we are prompted to look at it from within the book. We look at it from outside and quite likely judge it from outside. Quite likely, slight as as likely slightingly as anything else. Oh, isn't that an odd, quaint, peculiar thing that those rabbits believe? Then we get our first introduction is through the human voices. The human voices are the first thing that we hear. We start from the human point of view. The starting point of this story is so these men decide to do this thing, and I, I mean, like, yes, that's like in a sense the beginning of the action of the story. But what we don't get is the Warren was at peace, right? The way that the book starts with the description of the meadow and the rabbits, you know, sort of the the, the beautiful and content life of the Warren at Sandalford, we are in we are immersed in mainstream rabbitry from the very first paragraph of this book. That's not the very first glimpse. So now, when we get to Fiverr and Hazel the frame that we've been given has not only permitted us, but even in a sense encouraged us to look at it from an anthropocentric point of view rather than a Lapino-centric point of view. Um, So, uh, you know, that, I think, is a small thing, but it's kind of fatal. Um, uh, Going back to the, the blood and the violence. What makes the blood and the violence less shocking, less dark, less gloomy and depressing in the book 
partly it's the visual versus you know the visual versus imagined thing that is the 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 visual medium versus book thing but i don't think that's it i think it's the frame as well the violence comes off differently from the rabbit's point of view um than it does from a purely human point of view kind of peeking into rabbit life um I think the way in which the violence and bloodshed isn't shocking in the book is a tribute to how successfully Adams immerses us in that secondary world of the rabbits. Um, this is the natural world. Fights happen. You know, uh, 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 predators are going to prey, right? Um, I mean, uh, th- this is what things die. Um, Creatures have, you know, you've got to fight to maintain your place in a hard world, and uh, and predators come and things get killed. This is life. This is what happens. You know, welcome to welcome to the rabbit world. Um, so even though it's quite near the beginning when we start getting it, right? Quite near the beginning when we start getting things like Hazel threatening, you know, stating flatly that they will kill Holly if he doesn't escape. It's um, it's still in the context of this rabbit point of view, which already by then we've been invited to adopt, and we're never invited to adopt that in the um, in the films. Um, the next uh, the next clip is is right after that. This is Fiverr's vision by the message board, um, and here this is partly another illustration of how they haven't framed it from a Latino-centric point of view, uh, but it's also um, more of a sort of an illustration of the consequences of their lack of framing. This scene is essentially the first time we are invited to see the rabbit's perspective, right? Having panned in, having done the legendary frame, uh, and then having done the pan back over 
largely human lands, very marked by human habitation uh, in the overall pan over. Um, because again, even the the panning over from like the the low flying helicopter view of the landscape brings out much emphasizes much more how cultivated the land is um, and how thoroughly the presence of men is involved. This is not at all the impression that we get. I mean, of course, they encounter men and they cross roads and things like that. Um, but um, when we see it from atop, it, it, it's just it's human country, right? Um, which creates a very different effect than the book does. And then we overhear the men talking. And Okay, now we finally are with the rabbits, and what do we get? Crazy drug trip thing, right? Again, I, 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 they're trying to represent Fiverr's vision, right? Now, Fiverr's vision, they go, they're going way beyond this, the, 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 the mandate of the book here in how they're... Um, uh, how they're what they're depicting. I mean, the 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 blood in the field is is you know the field being covered with blood was in the book. The business of you know, the black and the trees and the everything else it's not really there. But um, but anyway, it's not that I necessarily think what they did is a terrible terrible way to depict Fiverr's experience. I just think it's a terrible mistake to try to depict Fiverr's experience. What I liked about what they did in the Fiverr Beyond, you know, the 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 the, the, the Garfunkel section, um, what I like about what they attempted to do there, I dislike about their attempting to do it here. The book doesn't give us that, and I think that's very important. We see the effect on Fiverr from the outside of his vision, and we hear him talk, but that's it. We don't get an inside view of what it's like for Fiverr or what he sees. And I think that that's not only important, but I think that that's crucial. Again, the frame, the context, the main street rabbitry, mainstream rabbitry in which we're being emerged in the first few chapters of this book, um, being immersed, submerged. I kind of combine those words. Uh, anyway, um, that, doesn't, we, that, that doesn't get broken during those first... So we get Hazel's point of view, not Fiverr's point of view. Because if the first impression we get of, like, what's going on with these rabbits and how these rabbits think is, like, crazy, trippy Fiverr dream, we're getting the wrong impression about, uh, about rabbits, right? He's not mainstream. He's not the standard. Um, just seeing him cower down and going thorn and being freaked out... Um, I, I get, would that work just as well on screen as it does in the book? You know, no, I'm not really sure that it would. But this, I think, is a fatal choice, especially combined with the framing choices that they've already made. So, again, in the end, we're never really introduced to that secondary world that I talked about so many times in reading the book, that secondary world of let us reimagine the world from the rabbit's point of view. Let us try to immerse ourselves in rabbit culture, to think like rabbits, to, to see, the, see, and not only see, but smell and hear the world as rabbits see and, hell and smell and hear it, um, and try to think as they think. And this is why, again, we're not shocked when we have to fight over things, why we're not, uh, why we're, you know, we might be saddened and we might be scared, um, uh, you know, for our own lives, but we're not, you know, like sickened and shocked uh, to see, uh, you know, blood and animals being killed, because that's the world. We're never invited, even, into that secondary world. I think 
the single biggest problem that this film has is that it never invites us into that secondary world. It not only fails to achieve that in, that thing which I think is the greatest uh, success of what I, I think that is the absolute cornerstone of what makes Watership Down such an amazing book is the effectiveness with which it draws us into the imaginary world of rabbits, into the imagined experience of the rabbits. Um, not into an anthropomorphized rabbit, but rather into their own world. And the movie not only fails to do that, I don't think it really tries to do that. I think it just completely whiffs on that fact at all. And, um, you know, on like the fact that that's going on. Um, and that, I think, is, to me, the number one biggest flaw that this film has. Um, now, I will say, first of all, a couple of you have referred to the, the Watership Down TV series. I have to say, I, I haven't seen the TV series at all, so I can't really speak to it at all. But, even without seeing it, I have to admit, I'm skeptical that they... Uh, because, um, here's a picture... And again, I just googled this, okay? So I don't, uh, I don't, I don't, I've never seen it. But I look at this picture and I'm like, unless this picture is complete, look at them. They stand, they're standing up like humans. They're completely anthropomorphized, right? (laughs) Carita says Pipkin's even fatter. Um, Yes, yes. Um, um, Basically, they're proportioned like, exactly, in fact, like Rabbit in Winnie the Pooh, in the Disney Winnie the Pooh cartoon. Um, And, uh, given that, I'll be very surprised if there's, um, if there's any attempt to, uh, um, to, again, to sort of do any of that, to, to bring us into that secondary world. These rabbits look much more anthropomorphized even than the ones that we get in the in the in the in the feature film um but anyway like i said i don't want to i don't want to say too much here because i i've never seen it at all uh but um but that just really struck me when i saw i did look for images just to see what it was like visually and uh, i was like whoa uh hi poo um anyway um now, they did try... Well, you could argue, just to present, present counter-arguments here, you could argue that there are moments when they try to bring us into that world um, at least a little bit. Here's the one that I thought was most successful. This is Hazel and Company enter the woods for the first time. I've never been in a wood before, Hazel. He looks dangerous. Yes, that was a girl. Follow me. So remember we talked about the effect of the wood? That was one of the moments we looked at as an example of Adams drawing us into the secondary world and how scared they are of the wood and why the particular ways in which the wood is scary for, uh, you know, for them in ways that it wouldn't be for us. The, un, the strange sounds and movement. Nowhere to hide. You know, the 
can't get underground. Making a cameo appearance. It just killed. I saw blood on its hips. Lucky for us, it had. Otherwise, it might have been quicker. Then I like this bit. Trying to capture the effect of dawn. Remember how important the dawn was in the book there, and uh, and how the dawn comes and softens the woods and makes it look less threatening. I thought that was pretty. So you know, it's like. They're trying, but again, see, here, I can't even give them full credit for this, because it kind of seems to me more, you know, when I when I watch this, it kind of seems to be more like um, what they're doing is not trying to introduce us to a rabbit point of view, but just sort of show us that it's scary. You know, it, it, they're trying to build tension um, and to uh, make us recognize, like, oh, they're scared. But, I, you know, I'm not sure I can really give full credit for the actual we're bringing you into the rabbit perspective here. But this was like the, um, uh, that, this was the, uh, the, the, the closest, uh, that I could find, um, in, uh, in, in, in the film to do anything of that kind. Um, Okay. That's my first problem. My first problem is the framing and the complete lack of, uh, you know, secondary belief that it brings us in the rabbit world. Really, um, the way in which this simply, um, uh, the way that this really kind of, we remain looking at this from a human point of view and therefore are always kind of at risk of just anthropomorphizing the rabbits themselves in their situation. So, that's one of my three major problems with the film. My second major problem with the film. And again, this seems... It seems almost um, silly to say the ways that they deviated from the plot. Because, I mean, man, they were really pretty faithful to the plot. They were, but what infuriates... Well, not infuriates me. It's the next... It's the third thing that infuriates me. Um... Okay, no, some of these actually infuriate me too. But anyway, it's just the, the frustrating fact that some small deviations that they make are complete... Like, there's a series of small changes, um, but they add up in a particular way. They, add, they, they contribute to make some pretty profound changes to the way that we perceive the story. I have a few examples. Example number one. The arrival, or the invitation, to Cowslip's Warren. Bodies. Black! Now look, we can't go on like this. It gets worse and worse the further we go. Where are we going? It won't be much longer. Then we can all rest. How much longer? We never should have left. Suppose Fiber's all wrong. We want to go back and find out. Go back? After all we've been through? And probably get killed for wounding Captain Holly, an Owlslot officer. Talk sense for Fritz's sake. We must go on until we reach the hills. Those that go back will not... Not safe. Not safe. 
I don't believe you know where you're going. Now listen to me, you bunch of mole-snouted muckraking. It looks like you've come a long way. Do you live here? Yes. Uh, yes, this is our warren. Well, we need to stay here for a while. <laughs> Why not? Are we supposed you would. But I, I don't think there are enough of you, are there, to live very comfortably on your own. There are enough of us to protect ourselves. Oh, don't get upset. Who are you? What do you want? My name is Cowslip, and I don't want anything. What about the others? I don't want anything. That's what you mean. And now, if you'll excuse me, I hate the rain. <laughs> I love Cowslip's gait as he crosses the. He flops across the. He flops and flounces across the field. Um. Uh, I, his voice is fantastic. I, I I love his voice. Brian, you're right. It's a little odd that he looks skinny and broken and not like a fat prince. Um, uh, effete, I agree, Arthur, is a great word for cowslip. Um, and uh, I think that works very well. But here's the thing I want to point out first. Notice where we started. We started with the... Conf- basically, they've transplanted the confrontation in the heather to right before cowslip comes and invites them. Now, it's the kind of thing where, like, on the one hand, you know, you kind of back up from it, and you're like, oh, that's such a small change, right? I mean, come on. The Heather was the night before. They've skipped, like, a couple hours, right? And seriously, there's so much they've got to get done. Um, You know, how can we grudge them that? But the consequence of that shift is really huge. It places the entire trip into Cowslip's Warren in a completely different context, right? Remember, in the book, they've already passed through their, you know, their midnight of doubt, right? When they're in the heather and they don't think that Hazel knows where he's going and they're miserable and they want to go back and they don't know what to do. And they've succeeded and they've won and they've gotten past that and everyone's like, Hazel, you're the best you've got, you know, and, and, and he's, he's led them out and his authority is the highest that it's ever been and they're all happy and they're like, this is great, we're going to live here and it's going to, except for Fiverr, right, he's already like not uh, on board with this plan, but anyway, they're all like, this is great and then Council comes and says, hey, come live over here, right? Um, here, Cowslip's invitation, their choice to go and enter into Cowslip's burrow or, you know, into Council of the Warren, is a choice that's made from a position of strength, right? Um, it's a, it's, and it's sort of like a point of overconfidence on Hazel's part, as, as I was looking at it, the, you know, back when we discussed that. Here, in their moment, in now in their greatest moment of doubt, right? When they're all wanting to go home and they're completely miserable and everything's horrible, Council comes and says... Hey, well, I've got a nice warm warren, and not only is there food there, we have flera, right? Come join us. The kind of temptation that that is, right? The kind of, the whole context of the trip to, of the, you know, their their decision to enter Cowslip's warren and what's at stake there is completely altered. Brian, as you say, in the book they trust Hazel and thank him for bringing them there. Absolutely, here it's like, oh, well, Hazel screwed up, right? We don't, and it, like, the, basically it's not even resolved. They're just like, uh, we don't trust Hazel. Um, oh, uh, go with that dude? Yeah, well, okay, that's better than this crappy place that Hazel's brought us. Um, 
you know, it's it's um, it's yeah. Mark says they never even mentioned the mosaic. No, they don't. You see the wall, right? Remember, there's uh, the mosaic. The uh, the Elapera of Laburnum is next to the 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 wall, the underground well shaft. Um, so they're like the human bricks there, right? Um, we do see that in the Great Burrow. Um, it, it looks like the Great Burrow has actually been like partially constructed by men. I kind of like that. Um, but uh, but anyway, so yes, it is. It is you know Arthur is uh, is saying and, and and has been saying I think and and Arthur I completely agree with you. This whole sequence is compressed down to where it makes very little sense and is quite hard to follow. I, I, I suspect if you don't know the book. But to me, it's more than that. It's not just that it loses its impact, um, but that it is given a very different impact. And the result is to under... One result, at the very least, is to undermine Hazel. And we certainly never get the the growth in Hazel's character um, and, you know, the step that he takes in his own leadership in, uh, you know, with the whole Cowslips Warren incident is enormously important for the development of Hazel's character. Not only do we get none of that, it's undermined, in fact, by the movie. Tiny, tiny change, and yet I think it has a profound impact. Similarly, uh, let's call this the non-silverweed moment. As some of us are gathering and suggesting stories... Oh, we're hoping you'll tell one. Hazel can tell you about our adventures and how we had the good luck to join you. Surely there's no harm in that. Uh, Dandelion, why don't you tell us a story of El Arara? El Arara and his trickery don't really mean very much to us. Charming as it is. Rabbits will always need tricks. No, we need dignity. And above all, the will to accept our fate. As one of our poets is fond of saying, if I may quote... Yes, please. yes, yes. Of course. Why not? Please do. Where are you going, stream? Far, far away. Take me with you, stream. Take me on your dark journey. Lord Frith, oh, take me. Take me far away uh, to the hearts of life. That's not a dark journey. The silence. Um. I give you my breath. Who? My life. The river? The silence. I've had enough. Frith. <laughs> okay, alright. Obviously, I have a number of problems here. Um, now, again, small change. Right? I mean, you know, they've obviously, they're, they're, they're compressing and compressing, but, um, but st- I mean, one could easily accuse me of being ungrateful, right? It's like, hey, they kept some poetry in there. Right? Um, like, how easy would that have been to skip? Uh, you know, it'd be like, okay, let's cut Silverweed, let's cut the, um, let's see, uh, boy, we're in a real hurry, we gotta somehow squeeze this into like a 90 minute film, so, um, oh, I know, let's put some, let's keep some poetic recitation, let's do that for like a minute of our 90, right? Let's spend like more than 1% of the film reciting poetry. Um, Again, that's not an unintuitive choice, right? So one might think that I would be grateful to get at least some poetry, um, but I'm not. First, because they make nonsense of the poetry by giving us just bits of... I would rather give us one verse, maybe just stick to one verse, but the way in which they they mash parts of one stanza with parts of the last stanza, um, uh, 
it makes no sense of of the lot of it. I mean, it's it's just all kind of incoherent. Uh, that's why I was, you know, uh, uh, sort of heckling it there at the end um, because I don't. I, I think it doesn't work together at all, and it makes me wonder if they have thought much about what that poem actually means, or just the fact that it's poetry. I don't know, but they don't. They don't seem to have gotten it. Um, so yes, there's poetry, but. Um, you know, there's more to poetry than just the fact of existing. But then the second thing, of course, is Fiverr, right? Not having Silverweed there. Um, Fiverr's reaction, right? Let's do that again without my commentary on the uh, poetry. So there's Fiverr looking up at Cowslip <laughs> doing his, uh, uh, his highly sophisticated poetic recitation. The silence. I've had enough. I've had enough, Fiverr says, and storms out. Um, he, he, uh, Fiverr, there's, no, I mean, the, absolutely no sense of that, like, we were like two clouds and at the last minute I drifted wide. No sense of connection, no sense. It sounds like, okay, so basically Fiverr's the one who hates poetry more than anybody else in the Watership Down team. Uh, he's the most intolerant, uh, you know, anti-literary, uh, puritanical. He's like, I've had enough of this poetry crap. I'm going out into the field. Um, what is up with that? I mean, it, it, it's, again, the change that has been made is a really small one. Um, you could. It's easy to say, to kind of look at the sort of outline of what has happened and say, oh, look, they kept almost everything. Well, yeah, except... Except what made any of it make sense in the first place. Um, so the power of all of that is gone. They've thrown together the elements, but we don't know what Fiverr's problem is here. Um, uh, it um, anyway. I I, I I I. So they've taken this in, but they've not just made it incoherent. They have undermined like the point of what Fiverr's doing, Fiverr's prophetic stance, you know, when he says soon after, you know, right after this to Hazel, like, you know, they, the rest of them think I'm crazy, but you at least know that I'm not. I was like, really? They do? He does? Okay. I'll take your word for that. Um, but again, the whole impact of the, of the, you know, they've completely stripped the silverweed moment of any of its significance or sense, uh, in the story. And it, has a really important one. Um, okay, here's uh, example number three. Again, these are examples of these changes which are themselves um, small changes, but uh, they are they um, but they have, I think, a profound impact on how we look at the story and many of the characters. This is Hazel and his proposal to go to a uh, um, to uh, uh, Nottingham Farm with uh, with Pipkin. 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 Hmm? Why do we go and look around the farm? Um, um, farm, Hazel. What for? Farm! We're rabbits. We like Cats this. Cats and dogs. <laughs> I've got a little Really? Would it be dangerous? Of course not. Is it 
safe? Of course. Let's let's all go. No. Just you and me. Um that's creepy. No, just you and me. Um but anyway, um Okay, so uh Hazel, first of all, what the heck is your little plan? They've not even arrived at Watership Down yet, right? And he's already like, uh, I'm going to scope out the ladies at the farm. I, I mean, I don't understand. Um, and Karita, exactly as you say, why is he lying about this? This whole attitude with Pipkin, not apart from the fact, again, how far are we from that secondary world of the rabbits, apart from the fact that they completely whiff on the whole spirit of mischief thing, um, nevertheless, both on for both of their perspectives, not just uh, Hazel's, but Pipkin's as well. Um, but but then the fact that we've got Hazel and his relationship with Pipkin being based on on what deceiving him for what reason seems unclear. Um, like, why is he trying to drag Pipkin in? Why does it need to be Pipkin? We don't really know at all. Um, but, uh, and again, the fact that he has a plan is is not at all clear what his plan is or why he would possibly have it at this particular point. But, um, but, but that whole, the whole lying thing, oh, it's not dangerous. No, 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 don't worry about it at all. It's just, um, it, it doesn't really make any sense. Um, and I, I, a couple of you have commented, and uh, you are, and and you're very right to say. I think that Hazel's character is almost completely eviscerated in this film. Um, who is Hazel? What is? Why is he Chief Rabbit at all? What does he give them? Um, what exactly does uh, does does uh, Hazel bring to the table? We're just really not shown that. Now, again, I, I don't want to just uh, I don't want to just bash it. Um, uh, it's what Hazel does in the book is really hard to convey. I mean, it's much easier to show Bigwig being heroic in ways that Bigwig is heroic in the book. It's much harder to show a character being heroic as Hazel is being heroic in the book. Um, uh, Karita says the question of Hazel versus Bigwig is never raised in the movie. It's kind of raised at the beginning. We do see some of the tension when they're first setting out, um, as we do in the book, but it's not really resolved. Um, uh, Certainly not with any real clarity anyway. Um, So again, it's... Okay, notice how closely they're sticking to the book, right? Hazel and Pipkin go to the farm and they meet the Hutch Rabbits and say, we'll come back and let you out and Clover's like two thumbs up and everything. I, I You know, in the, the with the cat and all, um, it's um, very close to the book. But by changing the context and by changing the way that Hazel's character is depicted in the context in which Hazel brings this up and the way he brings it up... Um, it's it's just kind of it's they depict this incident relatively faithfully and yet its significance is completely lost and the effect that it has is if not you know greatly if it's not only great, great, greatly reduced but almost reversed this is again why uh 
these examples are, are, are meant to kind of add up to show why I think this film, um, you know, does so many things so close to right, stays so faithful, and yet th- by doing that, despite doing that, ends up drifting so far wide of the actual effect that the book itself has. Example number four. Going backwards a little bit. This is them setting out from the Warren after the meeting with the Chief Rabbit. Who's that? It's me, Dandelion. Blackberry. Dandelion told me you were leaving the Warren tonight. If it's true, I'd like to come along. We'd like to come along too. I don't much you like would? the look of things. We must give everyone a toad flax fellow. Everyone? Me down the run. Nobody likes the look of things? Look at all those rabbits! My goodness! It's a general uprising! Ah, but the Ausla are on to them. The entire Warren, or most of it, women, children. We get the sign, right? I like the fact that we get the sign. Uh oh. It's the fire! It's the Ausla! you left, Arthur. Hey, colleague. Are you off duty? Off duty? I'm likely to remain off. I've left the Ausler. Fiver, I've been thinking about what you said. Okay. Um, the combination of how everybody in the Warren wants seems to want to leave and then almost everybody is captured. The fact that the expedition begins essentially in failure, in profound failure. They are the only, uh, you know, the, the, the rabbits which end up going off to found the Warren and Watership Down are merely the few that manage to escape. Um, and thus the attempt to uh, free you know, to, to lead the Sandalford Warren to safety is like a colossal failure from the beginning. Now, it does, of course, you know, Nancy, as you're pointing out, anticipate the Afrofanazola much more strongly. Um, but even that, actually, I think is not a good thing. Um, they did the toad flax scene with the cowslip really, really well. Um, but uh, uh, I, I'm just, I, I really like that. And the fact that they did that, and how the, and how they did that, but the whole like proto Afrofanalsla thing going on here, um, I think just lessens the impact of the Afrofanalsla later on. I mean, basically, when we see the Afrofanalsla, I mean, to some extent, isn't our reaction kind of like, well, yeah, but I thought that's what Alsla were like. That's what they were like back at the other Warren, right? What's the problem here? Um, but uh, but again, it it, it makes the. Um, it recontextualizes the whole thing from here are the few who believed, right? Here are the few who went along, uh, and uh, uh, and 
you know, the, who who managed uh, who who managed to escape, who you know, the few who believed and thus escaped. Um, that's a very different story from these are the last survivors, uh, you know, of like the the most the only ones that managed to escape. Um, you know, this is like the butt end of the refugees rather than the entirety of the refugees. Um, and also, it kind of makes the way that the Ausla is all like acting as a military unit, even with drums, uh, as Carita was was lamenting. Uh, but um, it makes Bigwig look more actively like a traitor, like he's just stabbing Holly in the back. Um, he has already quit the Ausla earlier on, right? He told he gave the chief rabbit a piece of his mind, um, uh, and was quite upfront about the thing. Um, and said that he was leaving. Um, whereas here, this looks like him just absolutely turning on, on Holly, um, and it makes him seem like, a, a, well, not very flattering, I don't think. Um, now, on to the scene which decided me. This scene alone made me hate this movie when I saw it originally. I was appalled, angry. The Beanfield. Well, it's a good thing they have a dough with them. That's what I say. I mean, like, they were smart enough in the movie at least to bring one dough. I mean, think how useful that's going to be later on. Because uh, they're surely going to wish they had a... Oh. Well... Never mind. Violet's gone. That picture in sound, Fiverr's face saying, Violet's gone, um, is the one thing that was graven into my memory about this film. I was so mad when I first saw because the idea that they would go away from the heroism of of Hazel and all of them holding together so that they didn't lose a single rabbit from the Sandalford Warren to Watership Down. That Hazel could proudly turn to Holly and say, you know, when he asks, how many did you lose? And he says, not one, right? And that they would introduce this random character just to get her killed, um... Ed uh, is pointing out it's just like uh, the Rankin-Bass Hobbit randomly killing uh, a whole bunch more of the dwarves <laughs> in the Battle of Five Armies. Um, yes, yes. How many? Like seven die? Something like that? Eight, maybe, in the Rankin-Bass Hobbit? Um, uh, yeah, yeah. I, Carolyn, you were remembering exactly the same moment about uh, uh, Hazel's point of pride when he tells Holly. Absolutely. Um, I... I, I, I Again, it, it's sort of a small thing, but I found it awful. Now, again, I, I can kind of see what they're doing right before this, um, when they're in the bean field. This is when they're all saying, like, oh, Hazel, you are, like, really awesome. This was wonderful that you found this. This was such... Oh, man, you're like a great chief rabbit. We'll call you Hazel Ra, I think. Right? So we're first getting this idea of Hazel built up as a chief. And I think that this scene is supposed to reinforce that, like... Oh, Violet went out. He told everybody to stay in the beanfield, and she disobeyed. What? 
uh, you know, the advice and command of the chief rabbit, Hazel, because he's a wise chief rabbit, but she disobeyed. And so she was smitten with death as a consequence because that was very foolish. So this just goes to show that Hazel is a really awesome chief rabbit. You should always do what he says. I suspect that that's kind of what they were going for there, but I think it absolutely backfires on them. Um, it does not boost Hazel. It undermines Hazel because, uh, you know, the, the, it, it, it can't come anywhere near to building up Hazel as he was built up by, through his leadership and resourcefulness, bringing all of his rabbits safely alive to Watership Down. And again, like, the fact that they missed that you know, the fact that they felt like, oh no, it, re- it will improve things to introduce a new character so that we can kill her off on the way. Um, and I guess explain why they have no does, though again, that still doesn't really seem to me like any kind of a good reason, but whatever. Because, um, uh, yeah, before they were in awesome shape, because, you know, they had one doe, so like that, that wasn't going to be any problems at all, surely. Anyhow, um, again, I... I, I, I that's one of the first things, again, even back in high school when I first saw it, I was like, that they are just completely tone deaf. Like, they don't understand the story. Anyone who would do that, who would think that they, they're building it up, that they're making it more, that they're increasing the drama, that they're boosting Hazel's character by this, um, has missed something so simple and so profound about the story that I feel like it can only be greeted with pity. Um, and uh, uh, last one. Last one of my second category. Last example. Example number six of relatively small uh, uh, things that they do, which nevertheless have a profound effect. The grisly and quite unexpected death of Blackavar underground before uh, Woundwart goes to fight Bigwig. Um, it's gross for one thing, so we get uh, uh, we get quite a bit more blood than actually we would see. This is their kind of surpassing realism here in depicting the blood, um, but um, okay. It's, I don't. I don't consider this nearly as bad as the death of Violet. I mean, I think that the the extent to which they're missing a crucial point in the story is much less here. Um, you could. I think that this is like more defensible than the other one. Um, are, are we getting here Black of our driven mad by the you know or or something like mad? Um, you know, he's overcome by his desire for vengeance against Woundwort for the sufferings that Woundwort has inflicted upon him, uh, a, you know, that so that he is driven to attack him and is, uh, and is killed for it. Uh, maybe. I guess we could go there. Um, uh, but it's a huge change in tone. I mean, the idea... Again, nobody dies in the honeycomb. Right, none of the rabbits have. They, not only do they manage to survive the assault of the Great Patrol from Ephrafa, but no, there are no casualties on the Watership Down side in that. 
that's something like a miracle. And to just throw a corpse in um, because, hey, we get a bloody mangled corpse this way. I, um, yeah, I mean, Carolyn, as you say, we're supposed to get another example of how horrible wound wart was, maybe. I, 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 I don't know. I mean, I... But again, my point is, ju- is not just like, that's not what happens to not what happens to Blackavar, right? They got it wrong. It's not just about that. It's not a purist thing. It's about what is the story that they're telling, right? What does this show us about the story that they're telling? And the story, it's a very different story. And they don't, there are, and again, I, I think it points again to the, there are there are things, and I think pretty profound things, about the story in the book that they just, either they don't get, or they aren't achieving uh, the depiction of. Okay, so that's my se- the first category, the framework and how we're not drawn into the secondary world of the rabbit point of view at all. The second thing is, again, this, this series of small changes that they make, which just which, again, not just the fact that how the compression makes it harder to follow or the scene less satisfying uh, necessarily, but the ways in which um, the changes that they make are particular, um, particularly sort of tone-deaf changes that don't even seem to recognize the profundity of the alteration that they're making to the story in some of these particular changes. I understand that in doing an adaptation, they have to compress. Um, And I respect their right to do so. But the choices they're making in these examples, those six examples I just gave, what is achieved is not merely compression. What is achieved is is, is radical alteration of the story and of the themes and emphasis, and I think in ways that it doesn't seem like the film was really going for. Some of them, I think, were The Death of Blackavar. I think they want the film to be, like, a little bloodier. Um, They want to show, like, the cost and the the death. They want to show the bloody corpse of the rabbit underground. This is war, right? This is what it's really like. There should be more corpses. I think that is a conscious choice on their part. The hazel in the farmyard thing, the changes they make in Cowslips and Warren, I do not get the impression that those are conscious alterations in theme. Um, I think that they're just missing those themes. Um, Okay. My third problem is there... And this is the one that I find most unforgivable of all, and that is their terrible mishandling of the most crucial scenes in the book. Um, Their undermining of all... Are there any... Are there any uh, 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 exceptions to this? All of the most powerful, stirring movements in the book come off so flat uh, and and even nonsensical in the film that I just can't forgive it. Start with a simple one. The fight with the rats in the barn. Remember, this is the first moment we see them... Sorry, scared me with the rats there. Um, We see them coming together, right? Their coordination, Hazel's authority and Bigwig's strength and Bigwig coordinating the... What is that dance Bigwig is doing? 
double? Really? This is not a fight. We're running around. Where are they going? The rats, the rabbits are doing Looney Tunes routines. There's an owl for some reason. This like continual chaotic sort of slapstick, whatever. Um, it, I, it doesn't make any sense, Ethan. I agree. It doesn't make any sense at all. And um, and, and again, it's like okay, we're keeping the we're keeping the fight with the with the rats, right? But remember, that was a thing. It's not only is it significant for how it's described and the way that it's it's given as the example of them coming together, right? This is like the success story of how it looks like when everything is working right, right? That's the way that the rat fight works. And it's not just that it works that way in that moment. It gets referred back to several times later in the story. It becomes a kind of iconic moment for the rabbits of Watership Down bonding together to overcome adversity. And they keep it in the film and turn it into this chaotic slapstick I think like I'm like am I supposed to be laughing I mean like Bigwig's little dance at the beginning and there's a rat on my ear and like uh, and then again like shovels and owls and like what the heck Um, it's so I mean again the significance of this moment in the book the power of this moment in the book completely eviscerated completely eviscerated it's there right they again they've been faithful to the book but wow I wish it weren't there example number 2 and again these get worse and worse as we go on bigwig in the snare fiverr's big reveal of the truth of Cowslip's Warren. Is Cowslip coming? Maybe he knows. He wouldn't come. He told me to stop talking about it. He told you what? This is it. The wire's on a peg. We've got to dig it out. The peg's narrower down there. It tapers. But I can't get my teeth into it. Hipkin, you go in. The splinter's pretty. It's hard to breathe. But the peg's nearly through. Fiver, you go in. It's broken in two. It's free. Bigwig, the peg's out. You're free. I I, I think he's gone. We've got you out, Bigwig. You're free. Bigwig, please don't die. It's no use. We we got you out. What shall we do without him? My heart has joined the thousand, for my friends stopped stop running, running today. The, the corporate prayer is kind of interesting. The food, the warren, but no one must ever ask where anyone was or speak of the wires. The whole place is snared everywhere, every day. They left Pigwig to die. Silver's right. Let's drive them out, take their warren and live there ourselves. Yes, back to the warren. Yes. Yes, yes, back to the warren. Oh, Emily of Frith, you fools. That warren's nothing but a death hole. Yes, let's help ourselves to a roof of bones. Oh, kill them. Bigwig! <laughs> You're alive. Are you all right? right? We thought you were dead. Bigwig. Let him alone. Let him rest. Don't have to rest. What do we do now, Fiverr? Go 
go away from here. Look. Look. That's the place for us. Look. Look. Um, okay. <laughs> Arthur says, yes, precious. Is that what Fiverr almost said? Um, I... Okay. <laughs> That's true. I didn't notice that, Philip, but you're right. Pipkin's role in the film is to be everyone's yes man. Um, <laughs> you're absolutely right. I had noticed that, but you're completely right. And Carita, of course, is pointing out the fact they didn't hold any funeral service for Violet. Um, right? No, because they didn't have any lines for that, because they're following the book, but oh, wait, Violet wasn't in the book. Anyhow, um, again, the elements are there, right? But it seems like this in this um seems like this in this movie they remind me of like computer translations of foreign languages. You know, it's like technically those are the right words, but they don't really make syntactical sense the way you've put them together. Um I get uh um I sometimes get Google transcriptions of voicemails uh, on my phone, and it's h- hilarious. Um, but um, but anyway, I mean, it's 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 these scenes kind of remind me of that kind of effect, right? It's like all the elements are there. They kept many of the lines, and like Fiverr still says Emblier Frith, though he just kind of says it in passing and keeps on rolling, and nobody even notices that he's that he's uh, uttered a shocking impiety. Um, there's, you know, absolutely no force or, 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 or sense to what he's doing. Um, and, uh, and nobody's really listening to him anyway. And, um, you know, so there's no, there's no, uh, and then when Bigwig speaks, Bigwig's like, oh wait, Bigwig isn't really dead. He comes back and like, but what he says actively is nonsensical. Like they've just been like, oh, let's um, let's go back to the Warren and Fiverr's explained. Big week. Fiverr's just finished explaining. Oh no, we shouldn't go back there because like, there's really no point and it would be a bad thing to do. And Bigwig wakes up and he's like, I'll kill them. Oh wait, we we we. We passed that point in the conversation already, right? So I should have said that a couple minutes ago. I mean, it like it's like seriously, he's responding to what they said. I mean, it's just it amounts to nothing, uh, and, and it's not just. And I mean, it's true. You know, Arthur, as you've been saying throughout, there would have been a. Um, uh, I mean the the impact of the of the Caslips Warren scene would uh, a sequence would already have been uh, greatly greatly reduced by the extreme compression uh, of the thing, um, but uh, the um, uh, <laughs> Kate is quoting Monty Python. You've got all the words now. You just need to get them in the right order. Um, yeah, yeah, Kate. That's just exactly what it makes me think of. Um, but it's it's not just that. It's not just the fact that the compression of the of that sequence has robbed this of its force. This is a nonsensical chaos. And again, like okay, sometimes chaos happens, you know, but it's inexcusable at this moment. This is one of the top five most dramatic moments in the entire book. Um, you know, this this 
this whole passage should be hitting you like a ton of bricks. And it's awful. It's just terrible. And again, not because they've wildly differed from the book, but because they just don't seem to know how to put this together. And this keeps happening and keeps happening. It gets worse. Hazel getting shot. Okay, so we've just woken up the men because we made a stupid amount of noise doing this. And so Hazel manages to get the hutch rabbits out of which there seem to be six. Oh, but here come the men because they were too stupid and alerted them. There's rabbits out, look. That's getting in quick. Oh, and we've recaptured all the rabbits, so this whole thing is pointless and Clover doesn't even come. So let's just run away for our lives and leave them all behind and Hazel gets shot. I mean, what? (laughs) Come on now! Like, no self-sacrifice, no accomplishment of anything. Um, that like, let's make his being his being shot their own fault in the first place, right? Because they they woke up the men with their rather than like the unfortunate coincidence of the men driving in, you know, coming in the driveway in their car. No uh, sacrificial dash uh, on the part of, uh, of 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 Hazel to save anybody. Um, the complete failure to. Um, uh, to 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 get any of the does, so that now this entire sequence was you know like remember Fiverr's over harsh woods in the book right when he talks about uh, uh, Hazel throwing away his life in a in a in, in a stupid prank. Well, yes, in the movie that's exactly what it is. Um, again, like how can you immerse yourself in the story to the extent in which they did? to retell the story as close to as close to the book keeping as many of the lines as they did and yet be that clueless about the significance of that moment in the in the movie this ends up just being hazel gets shot and He's not even, like, limping. You can kind of see where he was wounded before, right? So it kind of becomes like a marker for... uh, And Karina, as you say, in the movie, movie Hazel is a bad chief rabbit. And this is another moment. And uh, one of you, I forget who it was. Was it Nancy or Karina? One of you, I think, um, was pointing out when we were looking at the rat scene. Um, Karina, it was you. Um... Uh, reminding me, as I had forgotten, that the whole reason, the reason they go into that shed where the rats attack them in the first place is Hazel's like, this will be a safe place, come, follow me into the shed where we will certainly be safe, and then they're set upon by rats. So, so yeah, exactly. He's, um, he's just like the crappiest chief rabbit ever in the movie. The Escape from Ephrafa. Bigwig and Heisenthway, looking anxious, under the bridge. Where is Kehar? Being an idiot. Bigwig, where's the bird? He'll be here. He better. He better? Like, that was... Where is that bird? That's Bigwig's frame of mind? Where is that? Being here, wait for a long time. Is no sunset. He's no good here. Where are they? Hazel, maybe you should have made a plan. Wouldn't it have been good to send some people back to meet them? them. 
should have thought of that. Stupid chief rabbit. Unfortunately, Kehar is chasing bugs up on the train tracks. It really came off. We'll take one or two of them with us before it's finished. Quick, quick! Or throw our lives away uselessly. You traitors! Captain, get this miserable group back to their marks. I'll settle with you myself, big week. There's no need to take you back. Come on and try, you crack brain slave driver! <laughs> Okay, so I know with the compression of the film, they can't possibly convey, um, as Adams does so powerfully, that oppressive sense of dread and suspense and tension. Uh, the, you know, and the way that Adams uses the coming storm and the sense of oppression that the thunder gives, um, as all the animals are aware of it and waiting for the thunder th- to break, the way that he uses that uh, as this kind of external symbol of Bigwig's own sensations of the conspiracy and the and, and the terrible crushing anxiety of are we going to be discovered? Okay, so um, I understand that that is going to be hard to do. And they don't have time to do the whole, like, and we're about to go, and then Woundward, you know, comes up and talks to Bigwig, and then he's got to wait for the next day, and oh no, now everything's wrong, and the filth has been taken. I, I, I totally get it. I know. you. We can't do all that stuff, and, and that's fine. But seriously? Um, Karita, absolutely. I do it, didn't I? Right? As I casually scratch my ear. That is so wrong! I mean, talk about taking any kind of sense of tension and just absolutely shooting it in the head in that moment. Like, oh, we weren't supposed to be, like, you know, caught up in this moment or anything, right? Instead, we have, like, Bigwig being like, yeah, I am pretty good, aren't I? Um, I can't even start. And then Kehar. I mean, um, Carolyn, I felt exactly that same way. Carolyn Morehouse says, Poor Kehar gets a depiction as atrocious as Treebeard's depiction in Jackson's Lord of the Rings. Um, I kept thinking Kehar has had a brain injury (laughs) instead of only damaging his wing. Um, I hadn't thought of that angle, Carolyn, but I'm going to go with that theory. Um, uh, Uh... yeah, I, I totally agree. Um, and actually, I think it's a, that's an excellent parallel, Carolyn. Um, my objections... Well, not my objections, but my... my uh, visceral disdain for the way that Kehar is treated in this film uh, is, uh, is, is, is very like uh, the, um, the, my, my 
the way in which I am appalled at the depiction of Treebeard uh, in The Lord of the Rings. Um, it's awful, and it's awful in a very, very similar way. Um, yeah, as Yana says, they changed Kehar from just having a language barrier to being mentally deficient. Uh, absolutely. Um, uh, and Arthur, I agree, even like the, the, the talking about mates instead of mutters. Like, was mutters too hard? Like, you couldn't even do mutters? Um, ugh, ugh. Um, uh, yeah. So I, I, it's, but, but again, it's not just the choice to make Kehar comic relief. It's the fact that um, this moment, like, okay, make him bumbling around, make him comical, but seriously, you're going to undermine this, you're going to choose to, like, this, as they're doing the dramatic, you know, uh, uh, Imperial Death March music, and, and uh, um, uh, you know, the, 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 the music is suggesting we're at this climactic, tense action sequence, and you're seriously going to undermine that by having the Kehar pecking around at Beatles up above while they're down below saying, "Where?" I mean, like this kind of like, oh, the comical misunderstanding between the two of them. Oh, dear. It is so misplaced that I can't... They seem actually averse to drama. They seem actually averse to uh, to heroism. Um, it, it's... it's um, oh. Um, I don't know. I don't know. Um, you know, Thomas uh, Johnson is suggesting maybe, you know, they're trying to appeal to children and so making it kind of funnier. Maybe, uh, you know, maybe Kehar is supposed to be funny in a way that children would find funny. I mean, I, I suspect... I mean, I suspect my six-year-old would laugh at Kehar. Um, but... Uh, but again, it's not the fact of somebody being funny that I mind. Um, I don't know. I don't know. Um, but again, but to me, even worse... I mean, again, I don't like the depiction of Kehar, but to me, is even worse. even worse is what they do in this scene, in this moment, what they do to this moment, which is one of the great moments. Um, uh, let's see. Yeah. 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 Um... Okay. One more. So we have to look it in the face. The fight between Bigwig and Woundwort. The great moment. Greatest moment in the book. like the parallelism here, right? Moonwort and the dog in pursuit, right? Moonwort as like a, you know, the, the Elil himself. That kind of works. Myself. There's no white bird here, big week. 
Necessary. First of all, uh, although there are things that I like about that, you know, as I said, I kind of like the parallel between Wound Ward and the dog building up to the, the confrontation between the two of them, sort of showing the two of them as sort of, you know, mirror images of each other in, in some kind of emphasizing certainly how he's not at all like a rabbit. Uh, okay, okay. All right. I'll give them that. Um, the fight, first of all. Um, I get it. Everybody was making fun of it. You know, they were like, eh, I'm scratching you. No, I'm scratching you. It's like, okay, that doesn't look very... Just as Dandelion Kate doesn't look very fast, right? So, uh, Woundwart and Bigwig didn't look very ferocious there. Um, but it's... it's. Uh, um, let's see, who was... Uh, good. Brian, yes. Brian Yoder, I agree with you exactly. Brian says... It's no longer holding him back and defending the Warren, even if he has to use his dead body to clog up the run. Now it's just a scratch-and-tear brawl. Um, I agree. Uh, where's the strat... I mean, we get him coming up from the ground, but, like, what's the point? What's gained by that? There's no sense of anything gained. I mean, he gets the first blow in, but okay. Um, there's there's very little sense of, of terror. They seem to be trying to build the terror with a parallel to the dog. You know, the, the dog chasing after... Dandelion and Blackberry and Heisenthal with her pronouncedly increased role in the film. Um, okay, you know, I can, you know that that's being paralleled to Woundwort chasing uh, uh, Pipkin, I guess, who's the bait, whatever. Um, but um, then the fight that comes is—it's not just that it's kind of nonsensical. Um, both of them throw the other onto their backs. 
if the one rabbit has the other rabbit pinned down on his back, the fight is over. I mean, they both of them basically have the opportunity to rip the throats out of their opponents on several occasions, and it doesn't happen. And it's really hard for me watching this to keep my to like keep my uh, disbelief at bay for one thing. Um, but the other thing is that they're two equally balanced. The two of them look almost the same size. The, there's no sense of strategy, right? Again, you know, in the book, it's so clear. Woundward is much bigger than Bigwig. He's much heavier than Bigwig. If he has a chance to, you know, he wants to come in and use his weight. Bigwig wants to keep him from doing that. The heroism, the you know, the 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 like, you know, Bigwig expending, uh, you know, almost you know, bursting his heart in the attempt to to stop the weight of Woundward pushing against him. Um, you know, again, the effect of that is just completely lost. What we get is, like, a big knockdown, you know, cage match between two large and ferocious rabbits who both end up almost equally bloodied, um, uh, you know, coming to this inconclusive fight. Bigwig doesn't look afraid. Woundwort, we never see his fear. I, you know, I, Philip Lord was making that, uh, uh, that point. I think it's a really important point. So the entire... There's no sense of climax to the fight at all. It's just terribly mishandled. Like, let's just make them scratch each other and we'll add a lot of blood. Um, the fact that Woundwort has no advantage, again, it's like, how can you not understand the fact that if you undermine Woundwort's obvious physical superiority to Bigwig, you are, by doing that, undermining Bigwig's heroism in standing up to him and beating him off, Right? If you want, as presumably they would probably say they did, to emphasize Bigwig's heroism, if you want Bigwig to look like a hero, don't undermine Woundwort, or just put them on an equal footing like that. And then, um, as you say, as Philip, as you say, there's no sense of his fear. Um, there's no sense of that Woundwort has given up. In fact, if anything, he's going back heroically to rescue his rabbits, right, when he hears them crying out um, up above. And Bigwig's line, right, about the chief rabbit has almost no force. And in fact, it goes by so fast, it's easy to miss it. Um, I'll go back there again. Yeah, we're dog, we're... Okay, right, it's just said Hraka for some reason. My chiefs told me to defend this run. It's like Bigwig doesn't even get to finish his sentence. My chief's told me to defend this run, and then <laughs> Woodward interrupts him. Right, your chief. Um, that's the one moment when it's like a little bit as if. Um, come back again here. Here, like we get a little bit of fear from Woundwart here. He looks a little bit nonplussed when he's saying, your chief. Um, but, um, I don't know. I mean, it's just the final example. It just, there's no... So, so I come back to my first question. Why is it, you know, can I... How can I understand how a film can be as faithful to the book as this film is to the book? Um, and yet 
give audiences such a profoundly wrong idea of the whole spirit of this book. Um, and I've tried to show how I think that happens and what leads to that um, in the film. Um, but to me, this, you know, it's this, this last thing, as I said, that really, that really drives me most crazy. Um, and that is the way in which all... And so again, so now I, I look at these and I say, well, of course, it makes perfect sense. Well, of course people find it dark and depressing because you have all the blood, you know, you, not all the blood, but you have the blood and you have the violence and you have the... Uh, but you have none of the triumph because all of the most triumphant moments... Um, are just not just flattened, undermined. They're twisted. They're um, uh, they're just really thrown out. It's like they it's it's it is as if the the filmmakers are just completely deaf to this. Um, and of course, like it doesn't hit us like Big Wig saying, "As my chief rabbit told you to." Um, I'm almost tempted in, in the film. If I hadn't read the book, I'd almost be tempted to say with Woundwort, your chief? Like, oh, Hazel's technically the chief rabbit. I forgot. Oh, yeah, that incompetent guy who sometimes does stupid things um, and doesn't really accomplish anything in the story. Yeah, I forgot. He's the chief rabbit, right? Um, doesn't have the same impact uh, as it does in the book. So, so basically, I guess, uh, you know, in conclusion, I'd say this film... You know, it comes close, you know, in some ways. It does almost everything right about the book, except for everything important. <laughs> you know, it, uh, the only thing that it misses is everything that makes Watership Down great. Other than that, it does a wonderful job. And that's why I really dislike the movie. So, um, I uh, I feel better <laughs> having worked through this, um, and uh, I know you guys have a lot of thoughts and ideas. I'm sorry I couldn't uh, uh, respond to more of your comments, um, and uh, I uh, uh, and I'm sure you guys have a lot to add. And there are many other things that we could have said here, um, but thank you for uh, joining me for this class. Thank you for electing this book. I'm so happy that we got to do Watership Down. I have wanted to teach Watership Down for almost my entire life, and I've never, ever gotten to teach it before. Um, there were several points in my earlier career when I was trying to figure out how I could possibly contort like a, a freshman uh, composition class or something uh, into a shape that would permit me to insert Watership Down into the syllabus, uh, but I never uh, really could do it with a clear conscience. Um, but, uh, but anyway, I, I have, uh, hang on, I'm going to get rid of Woundwort here. Goodbye, Woundwort. Um, uh, but anyway, I have really enjoyed doing this and thank you for the opportunity. Thank you for electing this book. And, uh, uh, those of you who are in our electorate, I encourage you to go and vote. Uh, uh I'm very excited to see which of those seven books we're going to do next. I'm going to be really happy and interested to do any of them. Uh, so I hope you'll join us here on our next adventure and uh, stay uh, um, stay in touch. Uh, uh, keep an eye on our uh, the Mythgard uh, uh, homepage, um, the Mythgard Academy Facebook page, and my Tolkien Professor uh, social media outlets, and uh, we'll be announcing the winner. Um, and you'll you know you'll get an email, but. 
keep an eye out. We'll have the new page and the new class and the new reading assignments and everything else. We'll be starting that up uh, in a couple weeks. So uh, thanks very much, everybody. Good night, and we'll see you soon for our uh, for our next book. Bye now.